am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. And we're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! Welcome, everybody, to Election Shock Therapy. Glad you could join us again for episode 10, I think, of this of our ongoing series leading of commentary and thought and applying political science to the upcoming election cycle. I'm Chris Moore, and here in my office with me, in my tiny, tiny studio, is Sam Mulberry from the History Department, my colleagues Andy Bramson and Mitchell Crum, both here in political science. We had a special episode earlier this week, right, Chris? I don't know if people caught that. but That's right. Uh, we, we hope to do a few more of these uh, one-off uh, special episodes with other faculty members, other people floating here in and around campus that we're affiliated with. Adam Johnson joined us last time. He's a neuroscientist and talked about some of the psychology of voting and the psychology of memory and decision-making. We hope to have a few other people on who deal with in the realms of journalism, uh, political advocacy, uh, even uh, budget and economics and some other things. Yeah, I mean, well. I would say we're a, we're kind of a, a full-functioning university, so if there's like a certain type of expert you'd like on, we can see what we can do in terms of... If you want us to talk about uh, Trump's anatomy and physiology, uh, <laughs> I think we could probably bring in somebody from uh, Health and Applied Sciences. And Marco Rubio already covered that for us earlier in the debate cycles. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there we go. <laughs> If you want to, if you want to know if, if Paul Ryan has optimized his workout routine, we can probably talk about that too. <laughs> well, thanks, guys. Uh, we uh, had a um, uh, an interesting week in politics. Did you stay awake for the vice presidential debate, gentlemen? So I was actually leading a reading group that night, and so I did not watch it. I confess. Oh, bad political scientist. Uh, bad political bad scientist. Political scientist. Yes, I know. I know. <laughs> Mitch, did you watch it? Yeah, I I, I, I uh, watched most of it. <clears throat> I think for the most part. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm and then he dozed off around the 73 minute mark. Afterwards. Yeah. Well, I'm also fighting fighting a little bit of a cold, but uh, 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 half of us are the walking wounded right now. So bear yeah. with us if we clear our throats more than usual. Uh, but as as I was watching it, I mean, of course, as uh, as you're seeing it, one of the things that uh, came. Came, uh, came home to me here is basically Mike Pence is trying to solidify, um, you know, sort of the wandering Republicans. Mm-hmm. So basically, he's trying to say, you know, those who had doubts about Trump, you know, don't worry. There's there's going to be an adult in the White House. You know, they may not be in the they may not be in the Oval Office, but you know, but I'll be right there, and you know, so you can you can kind of trust me. And I, I think that was kind of the effect. And uh, you know, in that way, I think he succeeded because it seems like most of the commentary that has come out mm-hmm. afterwards has said, you know, he was the adult um, on the debate stage. He wasn't the one constantly interrupting. He wasn't, right. uh, you know, the 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 attack dog. Um, and so, and so, in that way, I think he probably helped Trump uh, a, at least to the extent that a vice presidential debate can. Mm-hmm. By like, at least solidifying the base. Yeah, that's kind of what yeah. the commentary I read suggested. That it sounded like Kane was very aggressive. Did that? Yeah, Kane. Uh, you know, I think uh, you know one of the, uh, you know one moment uh, Pence had just uh, you know kind of a hilarious uh, quote he could make or a comment he could make. He said basically he just started to answer a question and, and Kane <laughs> interrupted him. He said he said pardon me while I interrupt you to finish my sentence. And I think that sort of <laughs> captured the, the the essence of the debate there, where basically Kane was um, really kind of abandoned his nice guy. Um, you know, appearance. Nice and guys really finished just, last, man. Yeah, and right. just, and just kind of right. went on the attack, complete attack dog um, mode there and really came off, um, at least to me, and it sounds like for most of the commentary, is, is pretty off-putting. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just somebody who's... What is, what is the... Uh, and I realize this is not a normal um, 
not a normal election season, but like what is but the, the VP? Uh, like, but the VP debate was a normal VD debate. Right, but but the, in terms of my mm-hmm. question, um, what is? Uh, thank you for interrupting. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Sam's gonna interrupt so he can Wrong. finish his question. <laughs> Uh, what is the objective of the the VP debate in this election? Like because it, this it actually is different. I mean, yeah. it sounds like part. I mean, you sort of said what the um what probably the the, the Trump Pence objective is, or at least the Pence objective is there. Yeah. What's the what is the Kane objective? What was what did you see as his objective for like what he tried to do? Because it seems like he was going after. Trump not going after Pence is that no I think that's right I think uh, you know Pence or uh, Kane was obviously instructed just to constantly try to attack Trump and Mm -hmm. um, you know I I, I'm I'm sure he was you know obviously in all these things they're very highly staged so I'm sure he was just following Mm -hmm. whatever the Clinton campaign told him to do Um, but in that way you know I think you know VP debates are are, I think are usually about uh, solidifying the base um, uh, for 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 both right. sides. Mm-hmm. I mean, because basically you have to think about a couple of things here. I mean, first of all, you have to think about who's actually watching this, and the people <laughs> right. who are actually watching are going to be the people who are really involved, and so that's going to be the people who are very invested in the parties and mm-hmm. things like that. And so the campaigns know that, and so they know they aren't necessarily appealing to the widest audience. And so usually the VP debate is about how can we appeal to these people. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, Kane was probably told, you know, go after Trump because that's kind of been the Clinton campaign's go two thing here is you know it's not you know even though clinton does have a lot of you know policy she's wants to forward their main talking point has been you can't support trump trump is just right. so terrible right. that you can't allow him in the white house and so i think so that's is, what is they're winning using. the vp debate less important than less important than getting out the messaging you want to get out oh absolutely yeah mm-hmm. I, I don't think uh, in terms of the vp debate i mean i'll be i mean just in glancing at like the news coverage now like it's already gone like you know unlike right. the unlike the first presidential right. debate which right. people are still talking about um you know people really the, the only people who really care about this are the party insiders and the you know people who are really following this closely yeah and again it's, it just ended 36 hours ago and it's it's you know right. it's already it, blipped off it still drew a big i mean uh, chris and i were looking at the the ratings it still drew a big number for uh, for a TV audience compared though. to compared to like a uh, a Monday night sitcom, sure. Right, right. I mean, that's, <laughs> but but those are human eyes, aren't they? Yeah, sure. So you know, <laughs> we, we to say so. To, well, I'm saying like to say well, it doesn't really. I mean, it doesn't really matter, or nobody's watching this. It's like, but pe- more people were watching this well, one than were watching. I think lots Mitch of is right. It matters for in a certain way. Uh, mm-hmm. No one is gonna. No one typically changes their vote because right. of the VP debate. Uh, when and, and oftentimes people don't change their vote because of presidential debates, but it, as we talked about last time, maybe it changes enthusiasm. I'm not even sure that mm-hmm. the VP debate does that. Sure. But what it in, the, in this way, Tim Kaine may have lost the debate but won the war because what the what the Democratic campaign mm-hmm. wanted to keep doing was keep uh, putting out criticisms of Trump, keep raising issues that he would then have to deal with, and 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 I think in that way, Kaine was uh, willing to lose a debate to to Pence. But can you, can you to, to sort of uh, keep that narrative about Trump in the media? Mm-hmm. The other thing um, I think here is there's a couple motives for Mike Pence here. Uh, Mike Pence throughout the debate uh, had to deal with and very often denied things that Trump actually said. Mm-hmm. In a sense, he has to do that for his own political future. So I think it's quite possible that Pence sees himself as having a longer term uh, future in the Republican Party, may want to run for president himself mm-hmm. and needs to set himself up as a normal, uh, typical Republican candidate because that's what he is. I mean, he's a darling of the evangelicals. He's a darling of the conservative social conservatives. And he needs to sort of separate himself from Trump, who's not mobilized them particularly effectively until recently 
to um, to run maybe in 2020. Does it create any problems for Trump that Pence did well and looked better than did did better in the debate than Trump did in his debate? Is that I mean does that does the optics of that create any problems? I don't think so. And Not a I, lot. I, have you guys seen the movie Crimson Tide? Yes. No. Okay, so the narrative that I I disagree with in this whole debate is that uh, Mike Pence is this calm, reasonable second in command who can kind of hold back the the maybe uh, fiery, unconventional, uh, um, uh, trigger happy president, a la a la Denzel Washington to Gene Hackman in, in Crimson Tide. And Crimson Tide. Although up... I will say, I will say, in this yeah. election season, if we, if if you had a, a third party option of Gene Hackman and Denzel Washington, how would they poll? Uh, they're they're they're, they're winning in a landslide. Okay. Right. <laughs> right. Sure. So I do. I, that's just not how the presidency works. The vice right. president doesn't sort of uh, mm-hmm. hang on to the arm of the president and say, "Wait, wait, slow down, slow down." Right. These right. two men are not close. Uh, they're, they're, there's not a trusting relationship between the two. We have no reason to think that Trump would lean heavily on Mike Pence should he win the presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Pence is setting himself up to to, to run in the future mm-hmm. or, or to run for mm-hmm. something else in the future. And I right. think that's astute on his part. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's he's in an awkward position now. He's got a he's got an unconventional candidate that he's tied himself to, and he has to try to both support him and can think mm-hmm. about his own future. So as and this is maybe going down a rabbit hole we don't need to go down, but as mm-hmm. as um. Pence looks at his future in the Republican Party. Is there is there a, a narrative where winning, where Trump winning would be worse for Pence's political future than mm-hmm. Trump losing? Absolutely, sure. Okay. Oh, in yeah. fact, probably is because for the reasons Chris just said. I mean, I, it's it's very hard to see Trump leaning heavily on Pence. The only way I see that really happening is if Trump gets in there, gets bored, which is possible, right? That he just doesn't really want to do this job of governing. And he kind of outsources a lot of it to Mike Pence because Mike Pence is sort of constitutionally, you know, a person you could do that with. Sure, um, sure. But but other than that, I mean, like if, if Trump actually wants to take a stab at governing, you know, where he become president, um, I can't see him leaning heavily on Pence. They just I don't get any sense that there's a, a connection between them. There's any particular trust between them. Um, there's nothing to m- make me think that they would have a governing relationship like we've seen with the last two presidents, right? Where, you know, Bush and Cheney, there was a lot of trust. Uh, I think Obama and Biden, there's a lot of trust, right? And they've worked together and that was, closely. And that was hard-earned. So, yeah, it was it, Yeah, it was very much so. And and I think that's, um, you know, but, but I just don't see that with these these okay. two. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and furthermore, one need not look much further back than Paul Ryan to realize that losing the vice presidency uh, can be a springboard mm-hmm. to being quite influential in your party. It's hard to imagine that Vice President Ryan, had Mitt Romney won in 2012, would be as, as influential as Speaker of the House Ryan is today. Sure. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. true. Right. Well, gentlemen, one of the topics that uh, Mitch proposed we talk about today, we haven't, we've, we've sort of circled around at various points in our previous podcasts, but haven't addressed directly, is the role of the media in politics. So... Well, maybe to start off with, uh, one of the things that, uh, that that I thought we'd think about here is, uh, you know, when we look at the media, there's been a decline in trust in the media. Mm. And when we think about the media, you know, basically um, uh, in 2012, um, according to a number of polls, you know, basically trust in the media among Democrats was only about 58% of Democrats said they trusted the media, 31% of independents, and only 26% of Republicans said they trusted the media. Um, and then I went back and I actually looked at uh, Gallup polling um, and for 
for in 2015 uh, at the at the trust in the media. And actually, for the Republicans especially, those numbers had fallen in half. So basically, wow. only about 14 percent of Republicans yeah. said that they trusted the media. Um, and, uh, you know, about a year ago when this election was getting underway. And what, do we, what do we mean that when we say the media? Well, that's an excellent question. So <laughs> right. when we think about that, I think that's I think that's actually part of the part of the problem is, you know, when we look at um, when, when, when we use the word media, what we mean is, you know, somehow people that are making the news are telling us things. And, you know, that's actually not in completely useful because there's a wide range of things. I mean, you're right. talking about things like network TV. You're talking about cable news TV, which are very different things. Um, you're talking about, you know, major newspapers. You're talking about magazines. You're talking about all sorts of different um, sure. areas. And, of course, right. the Internet has complicated this uh, immensely. So when people say that they don't trust, you know, the media, um, I think what people are usually thinking of is sort of the large-scale um, media organizations. The MSMs, right? The mainstream media. Yeah, the mainstream media. I think they're sort of thinking mm -hmm. of, like, mm -hmm. network TV. Um, it's kind of the major newspapers, things like that. Um, but that's not always clear, and it's not always clear that their critiques uh, extend to those organizations. Well, and I also yeah. wonder, I mean, with the sort of proliferation of media and the maybe the democratization of media mm -hmm. through the Internet, um, if people answer this question differently in terms of, I don't trust the media, except I trust the media that I trust. Right, right. You know, no, so because right. so yeah, yeah. so then it would make sense that that you could because there's you have so many options as a consumer of media that it's easier to say I don't trust the media um, because you can say the the stuff that I'm looking at isn't the media and mm -hmm. everybody it's can say media. that. So so we right. should see that. At, I mean, right. it, so it probably makes sense that that. That that drops. The thing that I find interesting right. is how much do they trust the media that they trust? Right. Yeah. Right. No, because, I think that's absolutely right. Well, and there's like maybe an analogy here is useful, right? I mean, like you consistently get similarly low ratings for Congress, right? As a rating People slightly don't, above syphilis. What's that? Right? Yeah. Right. It's around the level of you know the positive rating syphilis has, right? So um, co Congress has really really low ratings. Um, people will say, I don't like Congress, I disapprove of Congress, right? But then you have this weird thing where they also re-elect their own congressperson at incredibly high rates, right? I mean, like, members of the House right. and Senate are very successful at winning re-election, right? And so what's going on there? Well, we don't like Congress, but I think that, you know, Tom Emmer, who's my representative, or Amy Klobuchar, who's my senator, is doing a good job. I'm going to vote for him. I'm going to vote for her, um, even though... Right, I think that Congress is doing a bad job, right? And so there's that. I think that gets to that same sort of dis disconnect that you're talking about, Sam, which is that people disapprove of the media as a group, right? Because there's parts of it they don't like. There's views that are being expressed they don't approve of, but they like certain parts of it, right? I mean, sure. like they they enjoy going to MSNBC or they enjoy the Drudge Report or they enjoy you know um, you know the particular you know maybe they enjoy CNN or whatever, right? But mm -hmm. um, they just there are other parts they don't like and therefore they sort of disapprove of the entity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I, let me ask Mitch a question. We, I walked in uh, when I was walking in this morning. I walked past a car that had a bumper sticker on it that said, "I don't believe the liberal media." <laughs> Do we have nice. reason to believe that there's a consistent liberal or conservative bias in the media generally? So I think when we when we look at this, uh, this this gets back to kind of the separation, and I want to sort of make a two part answer to this question. Okay. So the first part is, um, on the one hand, there are uh, different voices in the media that are distinctly partisan, sure. and I think this is part of what Sam is getting at when he says, you know, mm -hmm. there's different parts of the media. People like different parts of it, and there are certain parts of the media that have especially have proliferated now with the internet and cable news and things that are distinctly partisan. You know, we have a distinctly conservative news network in Fox News. We have a distinct 
distinctly liberal news, uh, you know, cable news network in MSNBC. Right. Um, and, and, you know, and when we look, and so if people are talking about, well, I don't trust the media, and if we're just thinking about that, you know, well, they may have in mind, you know, a, you know, you know, one of the interesting things is still, you know, barely over half of Democrats say they trust the media too, so they may have in mind mm-hmm. Fox News. Um, and at the same time, right, you have like, um, you know, you've got all these partisan magazines, like, you know, on the right, you've got, um, you know, the, you've got National Review, you've got the, um, the, the American Conservative, you've got these kinds of magazines, the Weekly Standard. And on the left, you have, you know, the New Republic, um, you have um, Slate, Salon, these kinds of places. Sure. And so if you're thinking Mother about Jones. these. Yeah, Mother Jones. So, and so if you're thinking about like the media in these sorts of terms, there are lots of actual partisan outlets and they are partisan. Are there mm-hmm. polls that parse that? The question out in terms of instead of saying the media like like giving like polling people and saying you know here's ten media sources how much to what degree do you trust each one of those yes. oh absolutely yes yeah. and mm-hmm. and people do definitely like lean in very strong partisan ways okay. towards mm-hmm. trusting various media outlets um, especially and and this is uh, you know perhaps unsurprisingly, especially true on the right, although it's also true on the left, but even more distinctly on the right, where you have people who are who will say they distinctly only trust Fox News or only trust... Right. And are those... Uh, are the rates of that, like, are they very high then, like, or... They're substantial, yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Um, but, then, but then, okay, so that's the one answer. Uh, so then the other part to this, though, is then we have uh, basically what we would think of as sort of the standard investigative journalistic right. uh, sources, which are, you know, which have this strong standard of journalistic objectivity and trying to simply give you the news. And those would include places like the network TV stations. They would include things like the New York Times, Washington Post, um, you know, these major, major um, news organizations. And political scientists have tried for a long time to try to find partisan bias in these outlets, and they have failed. Mm-hmm. There have been... Been, um, you know, there's been a long push to try to find some kind of evidence where they, you know, where basically both sides aren't consistently represented in the story, or issues that one part that one party care about are not consistently brought up, and they just can't find it. Right? Mm-hmm. These newspapers mm-hmm. actually do an incredibly good job of actually bringing in voices from both sides mm-hmm. um, and and making sure that they represent the issues that matter to both parties. Mm-hmm. And so, as you go through and you and you see, uh, you know, these these institutions, you know, they um, they actually have, for the most part, even now, succeeded in, mm-hmm. do, in, in giving us, um, you know, what we would think of as bipartisan news, or basically mm-hmm. um, unbiased, objective, um, objective news. And uh, and so and so when we look at this, you know, when people say, well, you know, they don't they don't trust the media or the mainstream media is is biased. Um, it's it's really not in that way. There are other ways that we might see it as biased and that might lead people to think that, but that's it's not because they actually are giving short shrift to one side or the other. Yeah, I mean, and they get that reputation, I think, sometimes because they do pursue things very hard, which they should, right? But but they, they are pretty good about pursuing, you know, again, sort of bad things that both parties are doing, right? So whether it's, you know, Donald Trump saying things that are deeply inconsistent or Hillary Clinton um, having her own private um, email server, right? They've been pretty good about pursuing those mm-hmm. stories, running them to the ground, and trying as best possible, and it's been difficult with both of those people for different reasons, right? But as best possible to get the facts out there for the public so that they can consider them. Um, so people get upset when, you know, it's like, well, if you're a Hillary Clinton supporter, you're upset when they're attacking her. If you're a Trump supporter, you're upset when you feel like they're attacking him. But what they're doing is they're trying to do their job, which is to get the ideas and the facts out there for the Americans to think about. So is, is your sense that, that we get so conditioned by news that or by, by media outlets that are particularly on the left and particularly on the right, that when we see something that's unbiased, it feels biased because we're used to seeing <laughs> it from the perspective we want to see it from? 
Well, sure. I mean, there could be mm-hmm. a correction in that direction. I mean, yeah. uh, in, in psychology, we think about ideas of anchoring and adjustment. If you're sort of anchored to a, um, a liberal uh, interpretation of media, hearing something that's relatively unbiased is going to sound conservative to you. And if you flip that around, if you're anchored to conservative, it's mm-hmm. going to sound liberal to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like yeah. it's like putting your hand in a, in, a, in a bowl of hot water and then sticking it in a bowl of cold water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, and the other thing to think about here, and I just want to kind of take a quick step back here and think about one other aspect of the media that I think contributes to this, and that is that when we when we think about the news, and I'm using mm-hmm. like I want to use like scare quotes around the news here, <laughs> um, when we think about the news, what we're really getting is what we might think of as a construction, mm-hmm. and what do you when mean we by that? and yeah, so 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 what I mean by a construction here is that it's not you know, the thing itself. And what I mean by that is if you think about like what, what, what the news is, is it has to be something that is not, um, that, 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 that is basically built. It's something that is, it's, it's not something that's simply there. It's something that has to be, uh, you know, sort of constructed just like a building. And mm-hmm. so one of the, re- and mm-hmm. so basically there are two reasons that we have to have a construction when we think about the news. And one is that most of us lack access to most mm-hmm. of these things. You know, in other words, most of us can't go and visit President Obama. We can't visit the House and the Senate and, you know, our right. state houses and all these sorts. And even if we could, we can only be in one place at one time. Right. You know, so we can't be with the president and with Congress and with whatever's going on at the U.N. and over with the Syrian war mm-hmm. and with, you know, all these other places. And so we don't have the ability to be there and we don't have access. And then the other thing, of course, that's going on is there's lots of stuff that happens every day and mm-hmm. you can't report everything. You know, there's lots of important things happening mm-hmm. in Syria right now. There's lots of important things happening in France. There's lots mm-hmm. of important things happening in the White House. And there's lots of important things happening in all 50 state houses. You know, mm-hmm. we can't hear mm-hmm. about it all. And, and, that even, and we're not going to. I'm sorry? And we're not going to. Yeah, right, and we're not going right. to. Um, and, so, and so basically, you know, it's just like, you know, uh, you know, if you think about if you tell somebody about your day, mm-hmm. like, you know, you don't go to them and, you know, if somebody comes up to me and says, oh, how was your day mm-hmm. yesterday? You don't say, well, let's see, I woke up at 733 and I put my, you know, I yawned and I scratched my eyes and then I put my foot off the bed and I put mm-hmm. it in my slippers and I shuffled to the bathroom and I looked in the mirror. And, you know, you're not going <laughs> to give them like all these mundane details, right? right? You know, you're not going to really give them, a, you're going to give them a construction, right? You're going to mm-hmm. say, what I did yesterday was I got up in the morning and I, uh, you know, I went, I had a really good class and mm-hmm. then I um, had lunch with friends and then I came home and watched TV. That was it. You know, so you're going to give them like, basically, what are the highlights? What are the big mm-hmm. deal? And the news has to do the same thing. Right. And so then I think what that does then when people look at the news is, is if we have that in mind, if we realize that what we're getting is a construction is then we have to think about is what we're getting from this construction, you know, what we want from the news is that is that what it should be? Are we getting the important things? Right, right. And, and yeah, maybe, maybe I mean an international example might help here. So I mean, I, you know, my my area of specialty is studying Africa. And I grew up in Senegal and West Africa, and uh, you know it's it's interesting that people have this perception, right? Whenever I teach African politics, I have to talk about this. They have this perception that Africa is just like it's just one big bad thing going on, right? Um, it's just wars and genocide and right and corruption. I mean, everything is happening in Africa is pretty much bad, 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 right? That's actually not true, um, but it is the perception because that's what the media usually reports. They very rarely will ever report a good story for Africa. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. sufficiently interesting to um, Western viewers, right? It is interesting when you know people are being slaughtered, right, or when there's a disease that might you know make it a, its way across the ocean and threaten our lives, right? That's interesting. That's considered newsworthy. But simply talking about sort of you know good stories that are going on, roads that are being built, and you know governments that are reforming, right? These aren't considered particularly interesting sort of news bits for 
um, American, you know, American viewers, and so they don't report that, right? So there's there is that kind of selection thing that goes on as well, right? That, you know, what what do people what are people going to read? What are they going to watch? Because of course, you know, news media is also business, right? They're trying to they're trying to make money, and so they have to think about you know what will people pay attention to? And it turns out, good government in Africa is not really something that people find very interesting, unfortunately. And we know that people we've talked about that we talked about this with Adam Johnson in the, in the last podcast, but people are cognitive misers, meaning we like to spend less mental energy if we can get away with it. And one of the ways we spend less mental mm-hmm. energy is by right. fitting stories within defined narratives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and yeah. so certain kinds of tropes, certain kinds of dialogues fit within certain kinds of narratives. Mm-hmm. The election is a prime example of that. Yeah. Uh, building the election up as a horse race. Uh, one candidate gets a lead, the other candidate tries to catch up. Right. Uh, will they? Uh, and, and the media has an interest in making the race close, a mm-hmm. fight to the finish. So even if Hillary has a... Hillary Clinton has a pretty demonstrable lead at this point, particularly in electoral college. Right. It, would, mm-hmm. it would take a substantial swing for Donald Trump to challenge her to actually win the presidency. But most of the media reporting doesn't convey that. Most of the media reporting conveys that this is a really, really tight election. Mm-hmm. And it is in the sense that 45% of people really support Clinton, 45% of people really support Trump, and then the other 10% is sort of floating in the ether. But that's not really how the election, how we would say how likely it is that he, that he would become president versus how likely it is that she becomes president. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another analogy. We um, we had a, the presence of the of the activist group Black Lives Matter here on campus last mm-hmm. week, something we addressed in our uh, two couple podcasts ago. But one of the complaints of Black Lives Matter is even in stories where uh, there isn't a reporting of a police shooting or some other right. kind of thing, uh, the African-Americans are usually only used as, as experts or witnesses mm-hmm. in television news stories when they're talking about crime or when mm-hmm. they're talking about right. violence. They're very rarely uh, used to talk about business development or economics mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. even pop culture. Uh, those things are often right. left to sort of white interviewees. And so this is this is a problem of creating a narrative. When we you know when we think about African Americans and the news, mm-hmm. we tend to think about mm-hmm. violence and crime. Yeah. And and this is part of the this is a media narrative that is mm-hmm. lazy and makes it is easy to easy to obtain and easy to sort of follow along with because it doesn't require much cognitive effort on our parts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in a similar way, I mean, you're also going to get the media is going to be more likely to report a shooting. Um, because again, it fits with those narratives, right? They're yeah, be more violence, likely to re- violence and sex and those kinds of well, things. Well, right, money but, then, but then a particular shooting, right? They're going to be more likely to report a shooting of an African American than, say, a Hispanic male, right? I mean, like that's sure. more likely going to be national news, um, because again, it fits in with sort of if done by if done by the police or something. Absolutely, so, right, yeah, right, exactly. We now have a narrative for how right. that functions, right? So exactly. It's very easy to report. right, and that's a key distinction too, right? I mean, they're not they're going to be less likely to make a big, huge news story out of a gang shooting in Chicago that kills an African American male. That doesn't. You know, it's not as compelling of news, right? Right. Um, it's still a death and a death, right? But it's it's a you know right. it's a different it's a different sort of perception that people have about sort of how important this is. Um, you know, that's that's maybe unfortunately expected, whereas sort of the police doing that is unexpected and therefore is newsworthy. Uh, even though in both cases, what you have is somebody dying, right? Which seems sort of equivalent. Yeah. And, I, on a, and on a lighter note too, this also explains why. Take us to a later, later. Please, yes, I'm going to try real hard. <laughs> this also explains like why we pay so much attention to the lives of celebrities who seem to be famous for no reason other than they're famous. Brangelina. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the. I mean, at least we could say that Brad and Angelina are actors who appear in movies. Uh, we we can't say the same <laughs> at thing. At least for, they've done something. Yeah. We can't say the same of like Kim Kardashian who. Um, as far as I could tell, is famous for being on her own reality show, and she's famous uh, is, because is, she's famous, and is married to Kanye West. <laughs> but um, she got both of those things because she was famous. There's some sort of uh, um, 
uh, self-fulfilling prophecy here. But the right. reason we pay attention to these kinds of people mm-hmm. is because we because the media um, knows that we will pay attention. They're easy stories. They're, they're like kind of like the junk food of the news media. Mm-hmm. We, they're 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 tasty. They're easy to swallow. They go right down. Mm-hmm. They do nothing for us. But we but but gosh darn it, we love to hear about them, <laughs> even if we say we don't. Um, right. Yeah. So when Kanye West declares for 2020, Kanye, uh, then we can Kanye. debate Kim Kardashian as the first lady. But <laughs> un- until then, um, I think that's the last time we'll probably mention her on the podcast. Yeah. That's, probably, that's and, probably good. And I think, you know, a lot of what you guys are saying, like, helps bring us back around, actually, to saying why do people think that even mainstream media is biased? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you think about this, you know, a lot of this stuff, you know, if we think about you know, a lot of the media is very focused on bad news. And if right. you're very focused on bad news, if you're very focused on here's the next bad thing that's happened, mm. or here's the next scandal, or here's the next right. um, horrible unco- you know thing we've uncovered about Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or mm-hmm. you know the next or the you know the latest shooting, um, then what people are going to constantly be hearing is all oh, the media is constantly attacking the people I care about, you know, mm-hmm. and they may not right. hear, right. The st- they may not necessarily see the story. Oh, well, they're also attacking you know Hillary Clinton. They may just hear, oh, the media is attacking Donald Trump. Therefore, the media is biased and. Is, uh, is, right. is is being nasty to him, and so a lot of people will kind of will, will take this and they won't sort of be able to see the big picture. They'll just see this, you know, a couple of stories that you know say, oh, you know, the Trump Foundation is actually, you know, is actually a fraudulent charity or right. something like that, and say, right. oh, well, therefore the media is just being nasty to Trump, and so that's right. sort of fits in the in, fits in that narrative. Right. And in the same way too, I mean, another aspect of this is you know the media has become very focused on uh, sound bites as mm-hmm. well, and I think this mm-hmm. is something else that leads people to think the media is biased mm-hmm. um, in that, you know, a lot of times when we see the media, we just see little snippets. And I think right. Andy was kind of uh, pointing to this, too, when he said, mm-hmm. you know, when you hear about Africa, you just hear about Ebola and you just right. hear this little tiny little piece of it and right. you don't get to hear the big part. And this also applies to presidential candidates. Basically, you know, 40 years ago, the average uh, recording of a candidate was, uh, I think, around 43 seconds. Right. And it's now like less, basically less than seven seconds. Yeah. Wow. Um, and so when you yeah. look and so when you hear um, news coverage, you're not really hearing the candidates. You're hearing everybody talking about the candidates. Right. Um, and, and that also applies, you know, in other areas as well. You know, when you hear about things, you're just hearing little tiny pieces. And so people tend to say, well, you know, they're not giving the whole story. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, they're actually right. You know, mm-hmm. and it's not that mm-hmm. that's a partisan bias. You know, in that way, it's not that the media is partisanly biased, but it is a bias mm-hmm. in the sense that they are not um, necessarily giving full, you know, giving giving the people involved um, a full hearing for everything that they might want to say. And it changes right. how they talk too. This is why Hillary Clinton has yeah. tried so hard to make this lame joke about trumped up uh, trickle down economics work, because it fits the soundbite. Right. Uh, right. Right. Yep. And but yeah. it, it's functionally meaningless as political commentary. Right. Uh, we would do better if our candidates could, you know, have those forty-five second or right. minute-long sound. But they know they can't, and so then they they focus so on the sound. So it changes how and, they talk. Too. And I, I think we also the other thing we have to do here is take our own responsibility as uh, you know American citizens for this. I mean, why does the media do this? Why have they moved mm-hmm. from you know sort of giving an average of forty-three seconds to less than seven seconds? And part of the answer is we don't pay attention, right? I mean, our our own attention spans have declined, right? In yep. in terms of our willingness or ability. Depending on how you look at it, to focus on stories for the longer term, we are the sort of culture that sort of like you know like plays it for a few seconds to see if it sounds interesting, <laughs> or you know we scroll down wildly through the story to sort of see what's going on. I mean, like, and that's that's sort of the the nature of our culture today. Yeah. And so you know, the media again, they they need business, and how do you get business? You give the people what they want, right? And so. So even if they're trying to engage in objective journalism and trying to be even-handed, right, they're still going to sort of think about 
well, what's gonna what's gonna sell in terms of which what will make people watch us or read us, um, and then they they kind of do cater to that because yeah. again they're they're sort of bound by economic realities, um, the same as you know any other business. I want to come back just briefly for a moment to uh, something Sam question, raised earlier, which is do we have certain sources where we've looked at individual trust and distrust? Mm-hmm. And uh, I just pulled up really quickly here. Back in 2014, there was a Pew Research poll. Uh, we asked Americans basically a pretty simple survey. We said, have you heard of this news outlet? And if, and if they said yes, then we asked them, do you trust or distrust it? And the results are somewhat grim. Um, the most heard of uh, news media source was CNN. 95% of respondents said they'd heard of CNN. Good. Okay. I want to know about the 5% of people who hadn't heard of CNN. Uh, I'm sure that – well, anyway. Anyway. Um, but of the, of the 95% of that group, uh, 50, uh, 57% said they trusted CNN. That's pretty That's high. sort of the high water mark for trust, 57%. Um, 53%, so falling way off, had heard of NPR. Um, oh, wow. Because only half of America had heard of the na- of National Public Radio, but 55% of people who listen, who've heard of it, trust it. That's mm-hmm. pretty good. NBC has, uh, uh, the next three, uh, next three people, uh, uh, groups, uh, are the three major networks. Um, 90% or above had heard of NBC, ABC, and CBS. Their trust levels range from 53% to 49%. <laughs> So then the other thing that Pew did, which I thought was kind of interesting, was they looked at news sources that had the greatest ratio of trust to distrust. Mm-hmm. So uh, basically mm-hmm. the most trusted kinds of names in news. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then most trusted uh, in terms of the highest ratio of, people, of trust were The Economist, which is a, a British mm-hmm. publication. Mm-hmm. Uh, the BBC, British Broadcasting Company, which right. apparently we like the Brits. Uh, mm-hmm. NPR. <laughs> PBS, two uh, nationally funded yep. uh, news yep. sources, and the Wall Street Journal. Hmm. Interesting. All of them had at least a three to one, three point one to one ratio of trust to distrust, but none of them had more than fifty percent of Americans who'd actually heard of them. Fifty okay. percent of Americans had yeah, heard yeah. of PBS. Only fourteen percent of Americans had actually heard of the Economist. Mm-hmm. So um, these are essentially these are more niche markets, right. niche news right. outlets right. that are um, that are considered more. So people who do know them trust them mm-hmm. but a yeah. lot of people don't know them yeah, yeah. And i think that actually gets to one other thing and this is sort of what trump i think is tapping into during this election um you know when we look at the news you know a lot of people a lot of people who are trump supporters feel like um basically that there's sort of an elite culture that has left them behind and i was thinking about this recently as i was as i was listening to npr um <laughs> <laughs> it sort of betrays you know a little bit of what i'm listening to in the news that i listen to but anyway um as i was listening should, to NPR, should we go there should we ask what we all listen to should we ask talk about what we <laughs> yeah, consume um, but anyway, but I was but I was listening to I was listening to Marketplace and one mm-hmm. of the things that Marketplace always talks about is what's the nature of the stock market and they're usually in, uh, interviewing some kind of high powered exec and what I was thinking about was like if I'm a Trump supporter and I happen to flip on the radio and listen to this like this doesn't speak to me at all like mm-hmm. if I'm in rural you know I don't right. know West Virginia right. or if I'm in Kentucky or whatever else you know and and I'm a Trump supporter like that has nothing to do with my life. Mm-hmm. I have never, mm-hmm. you know, I couldn't care less what the stock market is doing, and you know, so who cares what some Fortune 500, right. you know, exec is doing? It doesn't really have anything to do with my day to day or anything else. And so, in that way, I think that also does. I think that's the kernel of truth mm-hmm. um, in what Trump has uh, brought is, has brought forward is that there are a, there is sort of an elite culture that speaks to some of these elite um, areas, and they really do neglect um, sometimes, you know, what uh, what what. Uh, what really matters to a lot to to a large, to a significant segment of the American population. Mm-hmm. Well, this is interesting because, as Andy mentioned earlier, 
the media has a profit motive. Uh, it mm -hmm. needs to find an audience, and if there's a big portion of a populace, the populace that doesn't, the marketplace on NPR doesn't speak to, then what are the media outlets which are filling the gap that are providing news for people in a way that's relatable to them? And I think I think the answer is the internet. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, internet and and talk radio to some extent too. I mean, you mm -hmm. get like. In some of those places, I mean, I think people like um, Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity are filling filling that gap for. I mean, for the for the kind of people that Mitchell was talking about, just sure. sort of Trump supporters. Uh, yeah, the overwhelming part of the media, which is on talk radio, is conservative. Right, and there has to be a, a place for uh, for liberals to go as well. Right, and I think I think yeah. the uh, the internet offers uh, both, internet both flavors. Yeah, uh, yeah. both yeah. Uh, far right wing and far mm -hmm. left wing. The mm -hmm. problem with the internet compared to all these other sources is there's a lot less editorial control. Right. Yeah, way less. Yeah, essentially, I mean, essentially on the internet, you know, anything anything can be true on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and often um, is. Yeah, right. and often and is. Often yeah, isn't. Right. And, and, you know, and one of the things that I think, you know, you guys um, have talked have, have talked a little bit about this, too, is, you know, um, just like you were saying, you know, when you were thinking about, you know, people's uh, voting, you know, people right. are, are sort of misers in the way that they, and, you know, cognitive misers. Mm -hmm. um, and when you look at the Internet, it's an easy way to just hear something that you agree with. Sure. And never have to hear facts or ideas that you disagree with. Um, and so and so when you look at this, you know, one of the benefits of looking at mainstream sources is they are going to give you, um, you know, problems and, you know, facts that come at things from both sides. Mm -hmm. You know, we mm -hmm. know that they generally speaking, even even though they have the problems we've already talked about, you know, sort of the profit motive and sensationalism right. and, right. Um, you know, sort of the sound bites and bad news focus, all those things, at least they're giving, you know, at least they're doing, you know, their best to, to basically give both sides a voice mm -hmm. and right. to present things that have to do, you know, in a bipartisan way that basically say, here's because of the way they're funded, sides. they're motivated to appeal to the largest audience possible. Right. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and with the internet, you've really lost that. And the other thing right. that you've lost on the internet too, and this is something, you know, I was recently just reading um, all or reading, watching all the president's men, Mm, um, mm -hmm. Which is a classic. I mean, if you haven't seen it, you should you, sh you should go out and rent that as as we get into this election season. Um, and, and as I'm watching it, you know, I'm thinking, you know, these guys spend hours and hours and hours, you know, pouring over these records. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's basically thankless, difficult work to do this kind of really deep investigative reporting. Um, and we basically take that for granted, and we've lost, we're losing that quickly mm -hmm. as we sort of think, well, if I can just read it on the internet, then it's okay. But you know, to do serious. Um, reporting takes a lot of work and it takes right. some money. You got to mm -hmm. pay people to do it, and we're very quickly losing that as our newsrooms and and these and our newspapers become more and more um, underfunded. Right, and, and and as people don't appreciate that, right, and they just go to these other sources. So there's a difference between a, a careful investigative story. I, mean, I was just reading one in the Star Tribune, right? It was talking about sort of um, environmental uh, challenges we face here in in Minnesota, right? And so talking about sort of the you know the stuff that's pouring into our rivers and how do you stop it? I mean, it was a really carefully uh, research, well thought out story. They clearly spent a lot of time kind of looking into these issues, talking to people on the ground, getting both sides. I mean, talking both to the, right. the people who are concerned that our, our rivers, you know, sort of are being destroyed, and also to the farmers who are, you know, kind of responsible for some of these things, but are, and are making the case that we need to do these things for our own mm -hmm. economic benefit and for the, you know, so we can grow food for Minnesotans, right, and so forth. I mean, so they were very careful. They did their research. It was a very, there was a huge distinction between a, a story like that, right, and just in terms of the research and the, 
the the quality of thought versus sort of these quick take you know mm-hmm. sort of opinion pieces that you get in a lot of these online news sources. But the challenge for a place like the Star Tribune is exactly what Mitch just said. I mean, it, you know, it's not clear that they make more money off that um, than they do off you know than these other sites are making off of these sort of poorly thought out and uh, you know reaction pieces essentially. Yeah. And and so that's the challenge, right? Is that often then the quality of what we would consider to be media and news reporting um, really has declined because yeah. mm-hmm. you know the, the places that take it seriously just don't have the funding, um, and that's a it's an issue. Well, gents, we are in the thick of the debate season right now, which means we're also in the thick of the spin season right now. Um, let's try and do a public service for our listeners here, <laughs> and it's easy. And I'll, I'll say this up front: it is easy to read into what anything what, what anybody says about their media choices and draw mm-hmm. assumptions because of what we've just said. Right. Which is to say, if I if if I would say, oh, I'm a consistent watcher of Fox News, you think, well, right. Moore must be a Republican. Right. Or right. or you know, or if I always watch MSNBC, well, he must be a Democrat because we tend to do that. Mm-hmm. But hold. Put put your bias aside for a second here. If you're gonna, uh, if you want to be a serious, thoughtful uh, um, investigator of the political process, and you want to make informed, good choices, what should you be watching and listening to, and reading? So I'm a I'm a big fan of um, for for political news, which is a, kind of what we're focusing on here. I'm a big fan of Real Clear Politics. Um, mm-hmm. Real Clear Politics is nice because it's not an individual. This news is a website. Site. It's a website. Um, RealClearPolitics.com, and it, it's nice because it kind of aggregates different sources. So what it does is it kind of shows me both what you're getting in the the mainstream sources, the places that are trying to do objective journalism, mm-hmm. just report the facts as best they can, um, and then also it gives you the sort of the right and left wing takes, right? I mean, the sort of the places that are not really doing objective news, mm-hmm. so the the Fox News and MSNBC type sources, um, and so it gives you a, a sense of that that range of opinions, right? So if you if you have a new story about Hillary Clinton's email server or the the latest thing that Donald Trump has said, right? I mean, you're going to get the people who are defending and the people who are attacking and the people who are trying to tell you sort of what's going on. So it, it does a nice job of of kind of balancing out those extremes and mm-hmm. giving you a sense of the the range of opinion on this. In terms of um, news sources, I, I do tend to lean on the Washington Post for my sort of um, general news. I do... Um, go there for that a good bit. And I also like, I mean, because I live in the Twin Cities, I like to check um, the Star Tribune um, sure. some for that, for their... For Minnesota uh, politics. For Minnesota kind of, of news. So yeah. those are kind of my big go-tos. Okay. Um, well, my my uh, homepage on my web browser is the New York Times. <laughs> okay. So and I and I uh, I have a digital subscription there, so I get it on my iPad and I read it pretty much every day. Okay. Um, so so I, so I, I rely pretty heavily on the on the New York Times for kind of my baseline mm-hmm. uh, news. And I you know there's a reason that the New York Times is known as you know the the paper of record for the United States. I mean right. they have most of the best and most elite journalists. Although of course mm-hmm. Washington Post and Wall Street Journal also <laughs> yeah. have quite a few top 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 people there as well. Um, and one of the things that I like. I'll just sort of make my quick pitch for the New York Times here. One of the things, even though the New York Times uh, even admitted a few years ago that, you know, there is definitely some leaning in their editorial mm-hmm. um, board. Yeah. And so I don't yeah. want to sort of sugarcoat that, you know, the New York Times, uh, but, you know, one of the things that's good about the New York Times and that I respect about the New York Times is that even though they have what they would say is is, is uh, a liberal leaning in their editorial right. board, they acknowledge it and they right. actually right. are very careful in thinking about it because they realize that they have that um, in their editorial board. And I think mm-hmm. that reflects sort of that honesty that we exp- that, that we want out of serious uh, journalism, that they, right. that they realize this about themselves. Um, but at any rate, they also, you know, the New York Times also has a wonderful slate of opinion writers as well mm-hmm. that are very, very smart, both from the left and the right. 
write. Yep. You know, basically uh, some of the best writers, you know, like Paul Krugman from the left or mm-hmm. Ross Duthot from the yeah. Um, yeah. for the right, um, you know, are, are, are absolutely outstanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other places that I look at is I usually will spin through, you know, maybe not every morning, but most mornings I'll kind of spin through some of the top other places. You know, I'll look at the American Conservative and I'll look mm-hmm. at National Review and then I'll mm-hmm. go over and look at uh, places like the New Republic and I'll check yeah. out um, Slate and, uh, and, I, and and the Daily Beast, places like that and kind of see what are what are what are quality folks on the left and the right saying um, about what's going on mm-hmm. in the news right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with, with uh, what Mitch just said here. The emphasis should be on the word quality, right. and um, some of our sources just are better than others, even if they mm-hmm. have something of a partisan leaning. So if you're looking you know, um, if you're looking to get started in this whole process, uh, the New York Times is a very quality uh, s- uh, um, source of news. It is slightly left of center. The Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. is a very quality source of news. It's slightly right of center. Read both of those, and you get a mm-hmm. pretty decent look at both sides, right. but not the extremities of both sides. And right. I'd say avoid the extremities mm-hmm. of both sides. Yep. Um, there's yep. there's no real need to, to sort of play that teeter-totter kind of game. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of uh, – I'm the international politics guy. I really like the BBC World News for yeah. international events. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I listen to that as a podcast just about every day. And I like I, – I do listen to public radio, and I think that that's, um, that provides some useful commentary. Um, I like the uh, um, I like two foreign if you're looking at getting into foreign policy mm-hmm. I like foreign affairs as a journal it's slightly left of center and again I like foreign policy journal uh, foreign affairs and foreign policy are two separate publications and that one's slightly right of center so I think um, and, and that and that's an even finer cutting than even right. the Wall Street <laughs> Journal and New York Times is so I think there's some val- some some reason to kind of and, and to, to go into to kind of look at both sides look at the mm-hmm. quality sources on both sides that's what I'd recommend too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, let me just kind of second that. You know, when I when I talk about news, you know, especially with my classes, you know, one of the things that I emphasize is I don't care, you know, what sources my students are drawing on necessarily, especially when they're doing like news brief type assignments and things like that. So long as they're a quality source, right? So long as they have people who have serious right. journalistic values and and, right. and integrity, you know, people who are trying honestly to seek out the truth and not simply be sort of hard, you know, partisan hacks that are just basically out there trying to say whatever uh, will make their candidate or you know one one side or the other look good. Right, right. And, and and these are the kinds of things. I mean, you know, if you look at you know places like you know just to you know draw on the kind of the top places. You know, if you think about you know even right leaning places like the National Review or the American Conservative, you know they actually care you know about getting the truth right, even though they lean towards mm-hmm. uh, the right. And in the same way on the left, right, you've got places like um, you know you've got places like Slate or the Daily Beast, the New know, Republic, the mm-hmm. New Republic, yeah, right? And, right. And they, they you know who actually care about getting to the truth. You know, they definitely have a real partisan leaning, but they right. but they also have right. real journalistic integrity. As well. Right. One thing to pay attention to in this election, and then we need to start to wrap up here, gents, but I would just say, too, we've had an interesting set of a few endorsements. Uh, there's, there's always endorsements, uh, editorial mm-hmm. media endorsements right. upon editorial pages of candidates in every election, but the ones to pay attention to are the ones that sort of flip the script. Mm-hmm. Um, right. uh, there, are, there have been a couple uh, um, traditionally Republican papers, one in Arizona, um, uh, forget where the others were um, that have endorsed Clinton in this, mm-hmm. this election. Right. Um, and that is part of the, is part of the dialogue and they're more newsworthy because they traditionally don't endorse right. Democrats. The USA today for the first time ever endorsed a candidate um, or, or not endorsed. Well, they, they, they did a non-endorsement. They didn't they, technically endorse. They said, they said don't vote for so, Trump. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then the Atlantic, uh, which is a 160 mm-hmm. year old publication 
uh, endorsed just for the third time in its history. Yeah. Um, they, mm-hmm. the, the previous two were Lincoln and Lyndon Johnson, and they, yeah. and they endorsed Clinton. So um, yeah. those are worth thinking about um, and kind of asking the question of why that's the case. Has mm-hmm. something changed at that media outlet, or has something changed in our politics? Well, and also, I think it's, um, it's been interesting, too. Not only have you had these endorsements of Clinton, you've also had some other papers that have sort of punted, essentially, and endorse Gary Johnson, right? Yes, Which is also incredibly too. unusual to have them endorse a third-party candidate, but also reflects that sort of deep unhappiness that a lot of people feel um, that's apparently reflected in some papers with the two major party candidates. Right, um, right, right, right. So it's been it's been interesting. I guess maybe as we sort of draw this to a close, the, the question we should end with is sort of thinking about, like, why all this matters, right? And so mm-hmm. I mean, one of the questions that Mitch had raised as we were um, preparing for this, this discussion is the question of why is the media essential for democracy? And so maybe... I don't know if you want to take a quick attack at that because I think I think that is a really important question. I mean, this I I think it is. Um, the question is why is it so important? Here? Right. Well, this kind of gets back to the you know what what uh, what I started to talk a little bit about when I was talking about a construction, and that is right. You know the. Without the media, we really don't know what's going on in politics. Right. You know, essentially, we have this sort of this epistemological problem, this knowledge problem. Mm-hmm. How do we know, uh, you know, what's going on in government? How do we know yep. what's going on in the world? And you know, basically, you know, we only personally experience the very limited things that mm-hmm. are right around us. And this, um, and 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 basically, the only access we have to what's going on um, in politics and in the wider world is the media. Right. And so, without them, or if you have a media that's unreliable and that isn't engaged in, you know, sort of deep investigative reporting, right. we really have lost um, our, uh, you know, the most important source of knowledge mm-hmm. that we have. Mm-hmm. And without knowledge, you know, there's no way to really hold government accountable or actually know right. what uh, different candidates stand for and believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's excellent. And the, the thing I'd add to that too is just thinking about. Um, you know, when you think of our Constitution, right, the, the First Amendment um, gives an ex- explicit protection for the press, right, freedom of the press. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the only sort of organization in that sense that gets that uh, sort of a, a right, right? I mean, most right. of the other rights are about American citizens more generally uh, or the states. But uh, that one gives it to a private organization, essentially, to the mm-hmm. news media. And I think one of the reasons that that's there, and I think that our founders were quite right about this, right, is that – um, you need the press to be able to hold the government accountable, right? And so yeah. when we think about checks and balances a lot in the way the executive and the legislative and the judicial kind of check each other. But the media is also a check. I mean, yeah, it's it also is. a check to hold the government accountable. And so even when, you know, even when Barack Obama or Donald Trump or whoever else doesn't like what the media is saying about um, them, right, they, they're, they're performing a very important function because they're making it, it – impossible or at least very difficult for people to get away with really crazy things right because they know the media is going to report on this and they're going to they're going to tell people about it and that's going to you know make people upset and that that in in a sense holds the candidates and our government officials accountable and that's a really important function Mm -hmm. well gentlemen uh we have the next debate coming up on sunday Mm -hmm. anything that people should be looking for in that debate quick hits uh, I think the first thing uh, to, to expect here is that uh, the media story, you know, if we want to talk about stories and storylines and things like that, is that Trump will do better. Um, hmm, and right. one of the things I think to anticipate, we usually see this as whoever won the first debate 
um, usually whoever whoever was in the second debate, the story that the media wants to tell, you know, basically the storyline that that uh, that Chris was talking about a little while ago, you know, a lot of times the media loves a comeback, and sure. so you know, and so one of the favorite things is to say, oh, you know, the can't the first candidate kind of got knocked out in the first round, oh, right. but they got right. back up and kept swinging in the second round. Yep. Right. Um, and so and so I would expect to see this happen now. Uh, with a candidate like Trump, uh, you know, we just don't know, um, you know, what will happen if he fall. Maybe he'll fall flat on his face again. But I would also right. anticipate that maybe, maybe Trump will take preparation a little more seriously, but maybe mm. not. His I mean, campaign is... has already said that he is. So they've acknowledged that his prep yeah. wasn't particularly serious prior to the first debate. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so, yeah. you know, so, so, so it seems like that's probably going to be the outcome is Trump will be a little more um, prepared and probably, you know, as we've said before, you know, because the bar is set so much lower for him right. for his performance it will be better than last time and yeah. so it will be perceived as oh you know trump really did did uh, a good job um, and that will probably be the story that comes out of that yeah the other thing i would that's interesting with this debate this is the weird one right so this is the one where they Town actually have to inter- interact with mm-hmm. with <laughs> allegedly regular citizens i mean they're, <laughs> they're you know, people who have been highly selected with highly scripted questions that they may not deviate from um, so, like, I always find myself a little skeptical of this format because it's it just feels very pseudo. It's sort of like I mean, live I mean, set dressing. It is totally. I mean, it's like well, it's it's like reality TV, which yeah. I always is like it's TV but not really reality, right? So, um, <laughs> it, at some level, right? Like, it's just weird. But anyway, that I'm not really sure what this is going to do because we have two candidates who are not actually all that good at interacting with regular people. Mm. Um, if anything, I mean, I think I would give a slight edge to Trump on that, and so that too makes me think that with Mitch that he might do better in this one. Mm. Um, Hillary Clinton does not, she's not, I mean, warm and personal, personable are not really her fortes, uh, unlike her, you know, her husband who is just sort of fantastic in this kind of setting. Um, so, yeah, maybe it may be an advantage for Trump there, but as long as he can avoid, you know, saying things to people that he shouldn't say mm-hmm. um, and, you know, like disregarding their questions if he doesn't like them and so forth. So, it, yeah, this, this feels like a wild card to me. Like, I just, I'm looking at both of these candidates and thinking they're not the kind of people that I, I traditionally see doing really well. In this kind of setting, mm-hmm. so I'm I'm very curious what that will look like. But I want to give uh, listeners a warning. I think before, after this debate, you're going to hear this is a stupid story warning. Beware the stupid body language story, uh, <laughs> because this is the debate where it's town hall right. style. The candidates right. are encouraged mm-hmm. to walk around. Uh, uh, um, 16 years ago, Al Gore sort of famously um, stood too close to George W. Bush. Uh, Mitt Romney uh, or no John McCain was too frenetic he was um, he was way too animated they said and this was an overcompensation for him being the older candidate these stories are dumb right how your candidate stands how they amble around a room is not a good marker for what kind of president they're going to be Mm -hmm. but um, but the media will talk about that because this is different about this debate and 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 with one candidate Mm -hmm. you know stumbles or trips literally in this case uh, or if they (laughs) you know if they gesticulate too much yeah, we're going to talk about it, but right. I don't think we need to. Yeah, especially and this is their older candidates too. Like if one of them looks tired in the second half or something like that, <laughs> you could get some interesting lines there. Although you might be wrong, Chris. I mean, like in the sense that you know, if Trump wins, I mean, we might get a sort of reality TV show. So you might want to think about. I mean, is this the kind of reality TV show you want to see? <laughs> um, like, is this a an actor you enjoy watching uh, with the way that he interacts? Because we may, you know, uh, we may have live cameras in the Oval Office. I well, mean, you know, um, you know I, all, I would like to see him firing like government officials in the Oval Office. Citizens of Washington D.C. have always said that politics is Hollywood for ugly people. So. Um, <laughs> 
might we might be headed for a reality Ooh. show regardless of who wins the presidency. So oh, yeah, no, well, no, I don't I don't think so with Hillary Clinton. I mean, Hillary Clinton, if if we've learned anything about her, is she likes her privacy. Hence the sure. the email server privacy. <laughs> But this but, is a reality show foisted upon uh, these people, yes, right? They true, don't get to choose true, it. True, true, um, true. Well, gentlemen, we need to wrap. But we'll be watching the debate, and we'll come back next week to to talk about it as well. On behalf of my colleagues here in the political science department and our uh, erstwhile colleague Sam, who had yet again to head off to another meeting, uh, I'm Chris Moore. And from on behalf of all of us, go Royals.